next week, I actually hope that I'll be able to see your smiles as you're sitting there. We're really praying that the governor will give the okay and we'll be able to free ourselves of these masks. If, if you want, if you still want to wear a mask, you can still worship in a mask. But um, I, we were in Nevada this week and in Nevada, if you've been fully vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask and it would felt like freedom. You know, I just walked through the restaurant doors like, yeah, I own this place. But anyway, <laughs> glad you guys are here. If you're wor watching us online through Zoom, we're uh, glad that you're worshiping with us this morning as well. One big happy family technology enables us to do that. Um, we uh, started our Sunday school this morning on Galatians. And uh, Dan read a quote from John Calvin, and I, I just love the quote. And I thought, it would be fun to start the service with this quote this morning. So let me read these words to you as we have come and gathered in uh, this place to worship. Calvin says, the, these words, who gave himself for our sins, so those words from Galatians, are very important. He wanted to tell the Galatians straight out that atonement for sins and perfect righteousness are not to be sought anywhere but in Christ. So glorious is this redemption that it should ravish us with wonder. We forget sometimes, I think, what a passionate uh, guy Calvin was. We think Calvinism and maybe dry or whatever should ravish us with wonder. And, you know, that's not something that happens naturally. That's something that the Holy Spirit has to do in us. So I'm going to pray. If you're able to stand, would you stand this morning? We're going to open with the song, Open the Eyes of My Heart. And that's our cry this morning, that God would show us uh, who he is and that we would be passionate about him. So let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for calling us into this house of worship, uh, for being present with your people, people by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we acknowledge before you this morning that um, sometimes we're dulled, our senses are dulled, and our vision of you is dulled, and we can't wrap our minds around how glorious you are. And so our first cry out in worship this morning, Lord, is that you would just open our eyes to who you are and that we would be uh, in wonder over that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. If you want to clap your hands. I want to see you. 
Won't you open the eyes of my heart? Cause I want to see you. I want to see you. To see you high and lifted up. Shining in the light of your glory. Pour out your power and love. It's pleasing. Let's sing to see you high and lifted. To see you high and lifted up. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes and will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. We worship the God who was we worship the God who is. We worship the God who evermore will be. He opened the prison doors. He parted the raging sea. Our God, He holds the victory. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. Shout out your praise. Oh, we'll shout out your praise. We 
sing to the God who heals. We sing to the God who saves. We sing to the God who always makes a way. God upon the cross, and he rose up from the grave. Our God still rolling stones away. Jesus the King, be all the honor forever. 
Strong, my Savior. 
This morning's reading, we pick up the uh, last half of uh, Daniel chapter 7, starting in at verse 15. <clears throat> As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth and uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth, beast will be a f uh, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom in the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. And he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Thank you, Jim. I think you did a great job reading that. I thought that was really well done. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, let me uh, open us in prayer, and then we'll turn to God's word. Uh, Lord, um, we sang about your holiness, how you are and were and will be. And Lord, those three words are connected with the word and, not then. Lord, there is never a time when you're not. You are not becoming. You will not be in the future. Lord, you just are. As you announced at uh, the burning bush, your name is I am. Your name is being itself. And Lord, as we gather this morning and, and uh, we come to worship you, we come to gather and to worship around ultimate reality, the fullness of being, that which can be no more. There, there can't be anything greater than you. And so, Lord, um, thank you that you call us, that you draw us and invite us in. And Lord, thank you that you ask us to come before you in prayer. 
that you want to hear our prayers. And Lord, the, the one that is on most of our minds and hearts right now is our next worship leader. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would be leading us to that person, that you would um, bring them to our attention soon, that we might be able to make a connection and, um, and begin to work together uh, for what worship for Trinity will look like in the future. And we pray again your blessing on the crumb rise as they go. Uh, pray for Calvary, ba uh, Calvary um, EFC as they have to adjust to a new worship leader as, as well. Lord, I pray that these changes are things that would increase your kingdom, further your gospel, and cause your saints to grow in grace. And uh, Lord, I'm also thinking of um, our brothers and sisters in the Southern Baptist Convention as they are gathered in Nashville this week for their major conference. And Lord, this one looks like it's gonna be very contentious. So we pray for unity within the Southern Baptist Convention. Lord, we pray for the primacy of the gospel, the, the person of Jesus Christ to shine above uh, partisan and um, political and ideological differences that may be surfacing. And uh, Lord, we're not Southern Baptists, but they are the largest Protestant denomination. And so um, they kind of shape the complexion of uh, evangelicalism in our nation. So we pray that you would bless them, that you would grant them unity. And Lord, we think also of our denomination as in a couple of weeks, our national conference will be coming up. It won't be nearly as contentious. We don't have as many big things to face, but we pray for uh, a successful conference there as well, and that you would uh, preserve our unity in, uh, in the spirit as well. And Lord, uh, to that end, we ask these things, not just so that we remain comfortable in our churches and in our denominations, but Lord, we ask these things because we gather as churches and denominations to complete the Great Commission, to go forward and bring your, your name, your gospel to the nations. And so to that end, Lord, would you spark revival? I pray, Lord, that you would spark first in me and then in our church and then in our city and then in our nation. And so, Lord, would you bring those things about Despite the differences inside your church, despite the differences inside of denominations, um, despite the differences between denominations, Lord, uh, bring your gospel to our nation, we ask again. And Lord, to that end, we pray that you'd be with us now as we look to your word. Help us to see, to understand, and to find you majestic. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Dotted along the shores of Italy, of the peninsula of Italy, are um, first century seawalls. The seawall is a, is a structure that was put in the sea to stop the waves coming in. And these seawalls around Italy are fairly amazing because they've stood centuries of salt water and harsh weather conditions and all that, and they're still standing. And what's most remarkable about them is they're not natural. It's not like they took a bunch of rocks and dumped them out there. The, Romans figured out how to make something that we still use today. They figured out how to make concrete. And the kind of concrete they made really amazes me because what they would do is they would build a box, a shape that the concrete would go in. They'd pour it in, and then they'd dump it into the ocean. They'd just drop it in. Now, how on earth is concrete supposed to set up underwater? Well, the, the composition of the concrete that they made actually solidified in water, in salt water. It, not only did it solidify, as time went on, it got harder and harder. According to National Geographic, the concrete used during the Roman times was stronger than the concrete used today. It consisted of volcanic ash and rock. 
seawater sea reacted with the concrete to form crystals and fill in the holes, which made the concrete even sturdier. Today, scientists hope to replicate this concrete to make our buildings stronger and more stable. You think, you know, that was centuries ago. They were pretty primitive. No, they were much more advanced. They're still trying to figure out how they did that. They're still working on that. But the idea is the Romans had discovered this mix of, of, um, of ingredients that would actually make the resulting thing stronger. It would make it better. It would make it more, more sturdy. And so if we were to go out and build those break, those uh, seawalls today using our concrete, they'd probably be gone in about a couple of decades. They just wouldn't stand the time. But 2,000 years later, the, the Roman ones are still there. There is something that, when it's mixed together, can become stronger. But there's also things that, when they mix together, they're not necessarily stronger. So think about Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. Um, what he described was this image. And when he got to the legs, it was legs of iron. And these legs of iron were going to be really, uh, really strong. That was how they were described. And when you get to the bottom of those legs, it was feet mixed with clay and iron. Well, clay and iron doesn't mix, does it? It doesn't get stronger. It can only be as strong as the clay. And so there's strength, but it's intermixed with br br brittleness. That's a hard word to say, brittleness. So today what we're going to do is we're going to look at how that mixture happens. And, and we're going to see that Western culture descended from Rome, inherits some of the strength, but also has some of that brittleness. And to do that, we're going to look at the rest of Daniel's um, uh, vision that he saw. Now, last week, when we introduced this chapter, we looked at it, and I really focused primarily on how do we read, how do we understand apocalyptic literature. And that was kind of my focus, although we did do some interpretation. This week, we're going to do it. We're going to look at and interpret um, some of this apocalyptic literature. And um, we're going to follow where Daniel goes. Daniel has reported in the first part the vision he saw. The sea is churned up, and four beasts rise up out of it. One looks like a lion, and one looks like a bear, and one looks like a leopard, and one looks like I don't know what it is. It was just undescribable. And so that was the vision that he saw. And after a while, he sees one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and sets up a judgment and judges this, and all of these things come to an end. So that was the, that was the, the dream. And now we pick up and we see... What does it mean? <laughs> We're with Daniel on this. Uh, beginning in verse 15, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning this. He wanted to know, what does this mean? Um, and, and that's where we're at, is we practiced last week how to interpret it, but now let's see what, what the Bible tells us what it means. So he approached one of those standing where, there. Well, was that just some innocent bystander? Was it one of the beasts? It was probably an angel in this vision because in verse 10, it talked about the 10,000 times 10,000 that stood before the Most High. And so Daniel is standing there amongst this huge crowd in front of the Most High, and he just kind of goes up and grabs the shoulder of somebody and says, can you explain this to me? And so fortunately, the man can. This angel turns to him and he says, these four great beasts are four kings who arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and forever. So the four beasts are kings, but they're kingdoms. So why does he say they're kings? 
Um, what's going on is you, you can, the Bible is going to interchange those ideas of king and kingdom. You can't have a kingdom if you don't have a king, and a king isn't a king without a kingdom. And so the words will slide back and forth. As a matter of fact, the very next thing he says is, uh, in verse 23, as for the fourth beast, uh, there shall be four kingdoms, and the horns are the kings. So you can see he kind of moves that metaphor back and forth. But the idea is no king, no kingdom, no kingdom, no king. Um, so you can use those, those um, interchangeably, if you will. The kingdoms will arise from the earth, and then in verse 18, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and forever. So what he's saying in these two verses is really the overview of the chapter. The four beasts are four kingdoms, but the saints are going to prevail. And that's what we're asking is how does that happen? What will that look like? So this is where Daniel goes. I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast, verse 19, which was different from the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron, claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. So as he considers this, he's not too worried about the lion. He understands that was Nebuchadnezzar, that one is done. He's not too bothered about the bear raised up on one side. That's the Medes and the Persian. That's coming to an end. He's not even bothered by the leopard, which would have been uh, Alexander the Great. That doesn't trouble him so much. They're scary. They're, they're terrifying beasts. But the one that really gets him is that fourth one. He can't make sense out of that. What is that thing? You've got to explain that to me. It, it, it has ten horns, and it's got iron teeth and, and claws of bronze. Now, when we looked at chapter 2, we said that that's talking about the Roman Empire. And, and we can say that this beast, then, is that Roman Empire, those legs of iron, because it talks about teeth of iron. It draws that connection. But it also talks about claws of bronze. Now, bronze was, was a pretty hard metal. Iron was superior, but bronze was a pretty uh, tough metal as well. Why does he bring up claws of bronze? Well, I think what, if you remember the, um, the statue, um, it was thighs of bronze, and that was Alexander the Great. So look at the Roman Empire. What, what Rome did was not come in and wipe everything out and replace it. It picked up where Greece had left off. It just extended that. So it includes some of that bronze in this, this beast as well. There's, there's more to it than that. And that's why this beast is unlike any of the other ones. It, it just swallows up more and more. Um, it had horns, and, and one of the horns has eyes and a mouth, and it spoke great things that seemed greater than its companions. Now, earlier he referred to it as a little horn, and now he says it seems greater than its companions. I don't think the greater is talking about it was larger than the other horns. It was a little horn. But it was greater in that it's going to have a greater impact. There's going to be more going on. There's going to be more to it than that. And then verse 21, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. This is probably what is really bothering Daniel at this point. He sees this horn, this little horn, prevailing over the saints, making war with them and prevailing. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had made war with the saints he took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and threw them into a furnace. But he didn't prevail over them. God delivered them. They walked right out of that. Darius's advisors had made war with the saints when they set Daniel up to have him thrown in a lion's den. But they didn't prevail over him. God shut the mouths of the lions and he walked out. So what's bothering Daniel as he looks at this is he's saying, is this king going to succeed where the other ones have failed? 
is this it? Is this the end of it for us? Well, verse 22 goes on and he says, until. There's a blessed until. He's going to prevail over the saints until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. So there's, there's a hope wedged into that. So this is that beast. This is what it's, what it's doing. This is how he's looking at it and Daniel's thoughts on it. But we need to hear what the interpretation is. And so what he does next is he, he quotes what the angel explained. He tells us how the angel interpreted this. Verse 23, thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, trample it down, and break it into pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change times and law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time times and half a time. So there shall be four kingdoms on the earth. Remember last week I said that, that churning of the sea and the four winds blowing on it, that's a very earthly kind of thing. These, these kingdoms are very earthly, very much grounded in the earth. Um, there, there are four kings that are going to come up, or four kingdoms. So the, earlier he said they were kings, they're actually the kingdoms. And then this fourth one, it shall be different from the others. There's going to be something unique about this fourth one. It, it won't be like the ones that came before. What could that be? Well, it will devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. H how is that different? Didn't, didn't Nebuchadnezzar do that? He marched all over the place and took over um, um, all the way to Egypt, up through uh, the uh, Babylon and, and onward. Or even Alexander the Great, he marched from uh, Macedonia through Turkey and down into the Middle East. Didn't he take over the whole world? Well, it was the known world at that time, but this one is going to be different. This kingdom is going to actually take over the whole world. And we'll see how that is in a moment. We'll, we'll see what that looks like. But it's going to do that. It'll take over the entire thing. It will trample it down and break it in pieces. And that's exactly what Daniel saw in his vision in verse 20. And there shall be a fourth kingdom. Uh, chapter 20, verse 40, or chapter 20. Chapter 2, verse 40. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. So this is that Roman Empire just rolling over everything, taking them all over. As for the ten horns, verse 24, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall rise after them. So there were more, ten king, more than ten kings in Rome. So what does this mean that the ten kings shall arise? We're talking apocalyptic literature. We're talking about visions. That notion of ten is probably just saying a large number, a round number, a fullness of kings shall arise from this one. But there's something different. This fullness of kings will arise, and then after them, after they're done, another one will arise. And that one is going to be very different. And so that, that's the part that is kind of troubling to Daniel is he, he notices this, this other one that rises, and it really is frightening. Um, the horns uh, and the beast, the horns and the beast is the kingdom, but they don't know, uh, I'm sorry, um, the horns are the kings, and the beast is the kingdom, but don't separate those two too much. Remember how we said that earlier they were switching back and forth between king and kingdom? 
Um, in verse 11, he said, I looked then because the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over and burned to fire. So the beast and the horn are not separate. They're, they're to be held together. The destruction of the king is the destruction of his kingdom. Um, so he goes on. He says, he shall speak, in verse 25, he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. So this king is going to be different. Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't speak words against Yahweh. He just didn't understand him. He didn't know who God was. And so God comes along and humbled Nebuchadnezzar, brought him low, made him into an animal for a period of time. He, God introduced himself. But he didn't come out speaking words against the Most High. He just treated him like another god until he knew better. Um, Belshazzar, on the other hand, was a little bit more flippant. He was going to just party with the, the goblets that they'd taken out of the temple, and God introduced to himself to, Dari, or to Belshazzar, but that was in Belshazzar's death. And again, he wasn't speaking bad of him. He just was ignorant of him, thought that he was like any other god. But this king, this one that's to come, will actually speak words against the Most High. We could say he will blaspheme the Most High. He will be opposed to him. And he will wear out the saints. So the saints of the Most High, from Daniel's perspective, is Israel. It's the nation of Israel. For us, we know that that would be the church, which would be faithful Israel and the Gentiles brought in. And they will be the saints of the Most High. And he will think to change times and the law. What on earth is that talking about? Well, when it came to um, the conquering of Israel... They actually left people in the land of Israel because they needed to understand who that God was so that they could worship and, and make him happy so that the land would continue to produce, so that Babylon would get what they sacked that nation for. But this king, this, this, this other king, this little horn, he's not going to do something like that. He's going to try to change all of that. He's going to try, try to change the, the, the calendar. He's going to try to change the... the um, the feasts and the festivals. He's going to rearrange it. And he's going to try to change the law. He's not going to respect that, that God that who, who has done those things. He's wanting to change that and wrap it all around himself. And they shall be given into his hands, that is, the saints of the Most High, for a time, times, and half a time. Um, he will prevail. They will be given into his hands. He will wear them out. But the point is, the scope of that's limited. It's a measured amount. It's time, times, and half a time, and no more. Now, what is times, times, and half a time? I don't know. It doesn't say. What I think Daniel is getting at using those terms, I think the, the picture there is it's for a time. So as the saints are being persecuted and worn down, they will feel like, okay, time's up. But then there's another time. And now it's going to feel like, oh, can't this end yet? Surely this must be over by now. And then there's half a time. So the idea there is, is Daniel is seeing this, and he's reminding uh, the people and us and, and others that this persecution that will come, this wearing down, this opposition, it's measured, it's finite, but it's not finite according to our desire. It's finite according to how God sees these things. It's going to last for the prescribed amount of time that he decides it will. But we, if we're going through that, 
it will seem like it's too long. Lord, how long, O oh Lord? How, how much more can we endure? Why would you let this go on this way? So for me, at that point, I'm asking the question, okay, so who is this little horn? Who is this king? Is it somebody in the past? Is it somebody in the future? Who, who is this? We need to know because he's going to wear us down and prevail against the saints. And that could be us. That could include us. It's, it's a possibility. So we need to know that. Well, first of all, to understand who that king is, we need to understand the kingdom from which he'll arise. And, and we'll get a picture of that. So remember the image from chapter 2. It had legs of iron and then feet of iron and clay mixed. So the legs of iron were the Roman Empire. That was the, the Rome that would roll across the world and just crush all opposition. But that kingdom didn't end. It didn't disappear. There's still some of that iron mixed in with those feet of clay. And so that the picture there is that this Roman Empire will continue in a way even after it's done. Now, the Roman Empire ended in 476 when the eastern half became the Byzantine Empire. Um, or it ended, there's, you know, scholars debate on exactly when it ended. But the Roman Empire came to an end. There's no Roman emperor today. So then what's going on with the feet of clay and iron? Well, the feet of clay and iron are that mixture that are not going to be as durable and so let's go back to chapter 2, beginning in verse 40, and just read what Daniel says about those feet of clay. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break all of these. And as you see the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet are partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. So the first thing is there's the strength of the Roman Empire is the iron, but then we get to a certain point where it's now mixed, it's diluted. And so what I'm thinking of is this this kingdom kind of fades into this mixture. It kind of bleeds into that mixture. And when you think about Western culture, you have to realize how indebted we are to the Roman Empire. There are so many things that we have today that we inherited from Rome. For example, when the founding of America as a republic, it was based on the Roman Republic. They looked to how Rome did those things. And so what we wanted was a lot of the aspects of the Roman Empire minus the emperor. We didn't want somebody in charge. So when we use words like Senate and veto, those are actually Roman concepts. The, the word Senate comes from the Latin for old man. So this would be the, the older men of the, of the nation coming together to decide these laws. Veto would be when somebody would propose a new law and somebody said, I object or I reject. That's what veto means. So we get those ideas from Rome. They come to us from Rome. Rome built roads to connect cities for trade and for rapid deployment of their troops. So did you drive, anybody drive here on a road today? That's Roman. The, the roads that we use are, are basically Roman invention. What existed before Rome began to conquer the world were goat tracks, 
just kind of, you know, wherever the carts went. Rome came in and said, no, we're paving that because we need to move quickly through these areas. So Western nations have really fallen, followed the Roman lead on, on that, for example. The system of law um, that the Romans invented, it became what we call British common law, which is kind of what American law is formed on. Now, there's more to it than that, but just the idea that you would take your court case to a judge is a Roman concept. And if you look around the world, many European capitals, and especially Washington, D.C., they're filled with Roman and Greek architecture. We owe this debt to Rome. Our alphabet is a Roman alphabet. So there's the strength of Rome. Many of the aspects of the strength of Rome are brought into us, into Western culture. Um, the good news is the stuff that really made Rome super strong, we didn't bring in because it was cruel. For example, the near absolute power of the emperor that was needed to hold the empire together, that's gone. And so what we have is those, those strong points of the Roman Empire mixed in with clay. And, and democracy is, is part of that clay. We, democracy can be overcome. It's not like we could have one strong man who's going to defend us all. It's if we all decide we want to end it, we end it. So it's weak. But a, an emperor, if you come to the emperor and say, we decided we don't want you to be emperor anymore, guess what happens? you lose in a big way. So the ruthless power of the military was also used to conquer states and keep them lying out of fear. That's one of the reasons that the roads were built, is so if a city went into revolt, they could quickly dispatch the army and go shut that down. And the way the Romans dealt with insurrection or rebellion or riots was not to come in and we're going to slap an embargo on you and we're going to send in and we're going to dis uh, and have dialogue. We're going to discuss this. We want to have trade negotiations. and let's They went in and wiped them out. They just leveled the city. I mean, that's what happened to Jerusalem. Jerusalem revolted and it was wiped out. So the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was ruthlessly enforced. That's why in, in Ephesus there was, there was fear that word was going to get out that there was a riot. And so they quickly, the, the city administrators say, we've got to stop this because we don't want Rome to come in and wipe us out. So some of the great things that Rome had were held together with this brutality. And Western culture is shaving off the brutality and trying to hang on to some of the other, the other good things that were part of it. Um, the, the, these kind of things are, are the clay that's between those. So there's a brittleness to Western culture that's built with some of the strength of Roman culture. Okay, but that's West, right? I thought this, this kingdom was going to spread across the whole world and crush everything. Well, what you see today is, especially since the advent of globalization and the Internet, is Western culture is spreading. So think of China for a moment. China, before the Communist Revolution, was an imperial state. They had an emperor. Where do you think the idea of communism came from? That is a thoroughly Western idea. The German, Karl Marx, decided that communism was a thing. And so then China becomes communist. They imported it from the West. Western culture is spreading. But communism's not Roman, so that doesn't count, right? Well, look at China today. What have they done within the last 20 or 30 years? Are they strictly a communist nation? they've imported something called capitalism, another Western culture. The final couple of decades of the Roman Empire was extremely capitalistic. 
When we went to the Reagan Library and we saw some of the uh, displays from Pompeii, they had the market stalls would put the prices on the front of them. That, that's an extremely capitalist idea. So some of the strength is spreading throughout the world. This, this kingdom now is diversified, but it's still got traits of Rome in it. And I think that's the picture of the, the feet of clay and iron mixed is our modern culture. So I think that's what's going on with the bottom part of that. So again, so then who's the little horn? <laughs> who's the king that's going to come? Where is he coming from? Well, one of the things that we have to remember is when we think about that, that little horn arising, we don't have to wait for a resurrected Roman Empire. That, that's not what is pictured there. It's not that the, the legs are iron, the feet are iron and clay, and the toes are iron again. We don't have to wait for Rome to be resurrected. It's spread throughout the world. Um, we don't have to wait for a one-world government to form to say then we have to start worrying about this little horn showing up. The, the stage is set. The feet are, are made. There's iron and there's clay and it's mixed together. And so the little horn could show up at any time. He's ready. He's ready to show up. So who is he? Well, last week, uh, I hope you remember, I, I looked at the book of Revelation. I said that little horn is actually what Revelation calls the beast. So let me just remind you really quick. In uh, Daniel 7, verse 8, the little horn was given a mouth and spoke great things. In Revelation 13, 5, the beast was given a mouth and uttered haughty and blasphemous things. In verse 21, the little, war, the little horn made war on the saints. In Revelation 13, 7, the, the beast made war on the saints. In Daniel 7, 24, the ten horns are ten kings. In Revelation 17, 12, the ten horns are ten kings. In Daniel 7, 26, and 27, the, the horn is destroyed by the judgment of the coming of the Son of Man. In Second Th Thessalonians 2, 8, in Revelation 19, 19, and 20, the beast is destroyed by the return of Christ. So we have to look at that little horn and say that is what was spoken of in the book of Revelation as the beast. I'd like to dig into that a little bit more because the beast is not the only thing that it's called in the New Testament. In the New Testament, that is also referred to as Antichrist and the man of lawlessness. And so if the stage is currently set for the beast or the horn or the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness to show up, we need to understand who he is. What's that going to look like? When we talk about Antichrist, we'll start there. Um, Antichrist is only mentioned a handful of times in the New Testament, um, and most of them are in 1 John, and it's only mentioned once in 2 John. Uh, so let's take a look at the mentions of that and, and try to figure out what is Antichrist going to look like? What is that little horn going to look like when he shows up? So here it is in, in 1 John uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would, not, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might be plain that they are not of us. So the first thing we notice about Antichrist is, you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. So there is a singular person who is coming. He is on the way. But John surprises us because what he says is, so now many Antichrists have come. This is John. This is first century. And, and many, anti, many antichrists had come by that point. 
Do you think they stopped? They're still coming. They're still out there. And he says, this is how we know it's the last hour. That's one of the reasons I think we're talking about those feet of clay and mixed iron is that's the last stage. That's the final one. That's how we know we're in that last stage is because the Antichrists have come. So who are they? What, is, what qualifies somebody to be an Antichrist? Well, we go to uh, 1 John 2, verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So the first mark of Antichrist is they deny that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is not the Messiah. That can't be. The next thing is it says he denies the Father and the Son. That's essentially denying the doctrine of the Trinity. The, the Son proceeds from the Father. The Father has eternally begotten the Son. The Father and the Son together eternally are God with the Holy Spirit. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. So the first thing we learn about Antichrist is it attacks theology proper. It denies the doctrine of the Trinity. It denies the, that Jesus is the Messiah. So what else do we learn from verse, 1 John chapter 4, verse 2? By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not Jesus, confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So the next thing that you see is they deny the incarnation. They deny that Je if, if the spirit is from God, they, they confess that Jesus came in the flesh from God. If they are the spirit of Antichrist, they deny that Jesus came in the flesh. There can't be an incarnation. How can one person have two natures? That's impossible. So that's some of the pictures of what the Antichrist looks like. So let me gather those up, kind of roll them together really quick and remind us. First of all, there is an Antichrist coming, one singular one coming. But there have been, are, and will be many Antichrists in their place. That's because the spirit of the Antichrist will be working in people. These Antichrists uh, will originate within the Christian church. They went out from us. So they were part of us. They denied these important doctrines, and they went out from us. And the blasphemy that they speak of is to deny the Trinity, deny the Incarnation, and to deny that Jesus is the Messiah. In this way, chapter, back in Daniel 7, this is how they speak against the Most High. This is what it means to speak against the Most High, is to attack theology proper, to deny that. So that's the term Antichrist. There's another term that's used in the New Testament, the man of lawlessness, or as the King James would translate it, the man of sin. Um, this is a little bit longer of a reading, so please bear with me. I'm going to read this whole section, and then, then we'll look through it really quick. This is from 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, I'm going to just start at verse 3. Paul says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, the day of Jesus' return, will not come unless the rebellion happens first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness, lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains it will do so until he is out of, out of the way. 
And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. That's a big chunk. Let me kind of sum that up really quick. There is someone who's called the man of lawlessness. He hasn't been revealed yet. At least he hadn't by the time Paul wrote that letter. There is something restraining this man of lawlessness, this one who's coming. That is the Antichrist, the ultimate one, the little horn that's going to wage war on the saints. He is to be revealed. He will exalt himself among, above every god. Anything, any religious system, he's going to exalt himself above it. I think that's what Daniel is talking about, seeking to change the times and the laws. I'm going to come in and fix your religion for you. He will proclaim himself to be God. So this is why he has to deny theology proper. This is why he has to deny Jesus as the incarnate one. Why he has to deny the Father and the Son. Why he has to say that Jesus is not the Messiah, because he's going to step in and say, no, I'm God. I'm the one. Not them. He will take his seat in the temple. Now, a couple of weeks ago we talked about that temple is us. The temple is the church. Some folks are looking forward to a temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem, and that's possible. But I don't think that's what's in view here. That's not the way Paul talks about the temple. We are the temple. And besides, didn't John tell us that this Antichrist, is they're going to go out from us? He's going to take his seat in the temple. He's going to be integrate in himself into the church and corrupt the church. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. There are many antichrists who have come. There will be more coming. And there will be false signs and wonders. So this is the opposition that we face. This is the picture that we have of the opposition that we're going to face. This is what it will be like to be worn down, to be oppressed, to have war waged against us. It won't be what we think it is. It'll be much more subtle, and it'll be hard to catch. So we have to be on guard. That's why we're being warned about these things. So anyone who comes in and begins to question those doctrines, they're, they're immediately to be suspect and, and, and watched carefully and eventually thrown out because they're not from us. It's important. It's not secondary. So then what hope do we have if we're going to be worn down by this, if we're going to be oppressed, if we're going to be fought against, what hope have we? How are we supposed to hang on to this? How do we stand together in that? Well, that's what comes in the second part. There is an eternal kingdom coming. Verse 26 from Daniel 7 again. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his, that's the little horn, his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole of heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall obey him. How can we endure that intense persecution? How, how do we resist the false signs and wonders? How do we fight against those things? Is we remember the times, or time, times, and half a time. The persecution will seem to go too long. It, it's just going to feel like it should be done by now. I have put up with enough. I can't take any more. And the key, the answer to how do you continue to hang on in that time is to look forward to that kingdom. This one who is persecuting you, this one who is opposing you, this one who is punishing you, 
will not escape. There comes a time when the Son of Man comes on the clouds of heaven, sets up his throne, and judges that one. And he will be done. He will be gone. And then what does the Son of Man do? He sets up his kingdom. And the way that we've had it described to us in Daniel is his kingdom will never end. It will never go away. But listen to what he says. The kingdom shall be given to the, the saints of the Most High. So now, does that mean that Jesus is going to show up, vanquish the Antichrist, set up the kingdom, and then go retire? And so you guys handle it? No, the kingdom is going to be given to us. You don't get a kingdom without a king. So as the king comes, as the king rules, we go into that kingdom. That's the picture from the New Testament as we enter into that kingdom. The kingdom shall be given to us. And what will that kingdom be like? What will that feel like? What that will feel like is imagine perfect justice. Absolutely perfect justice. There will never be a trial where Jesus is ruling, where we go, oh man, that, I don't think that should have gone that way. Jesus, who knows the heart and the mind of man, will look at the people who come before him and say, here's exactly what it should be like. This is how things are going to be. I know what you're thinking. I know what you did. There will be perfect justice. Since there will be perfect justice, there will be absolute peace. If, if a nation decides that they're going to rise up, King Jesus will say, no, that's not happening in my kingdom. But it won't be ruthless like the Romans. It will be with the authority of God saying, no, stop, because there will be perfect justice. This is that kingdom that we're going to inherit. But that's not the end of the kingdom. Because when you look forward past that kingdom to the new heavens and the new earth, it gets even better. Sin is done away with. Sin is gone. Death is no more. And imagine this. God himself will wipe away every tear. He will reach over and wipe the tear off your cheek and say, no, my child, it's done. And Satan and all it opposes will be gone. It will be eradicated from that. It will be re removed from that kingdom. And so listen to this. This is from Revelation 21. It, well, first, real quick, Daniel says um, that uh, the greatness of the kingdoms under heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. So the, the, the kingdoms are not just forgotten and done away with. They're given to us. They become ours in the new heavens and the new earth. I think that's what um, John is getting at in Revelation 21, beginning in verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light the nations shall walk. And the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there shall be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. That's the kingdom that we inherit. It's not like all of this blinks out and it never existed. It's made right and perfect and brought in. So can you endure the Antichrist? Can you endure the man of lawlessness? Can we fight against those antichrists who show up in the world? Can we stand firm? If you're given that promise, that vision of what awaits us, it can feed your heart and make you think it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. Time, times, and half a time. But we have to have that vision of that heavenly Jerusalem so that we can hang on to it. That's how we overcome 
And the, the chapter ends, verse 28. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So Daniel is satisfied with the vision, satisfied with the explanation, and it still greatly alarmed him. He's still pale with fear. That sounds like us. We're standing here, we're saying, we're struggling, we're, we're trying to be faithful to the Lord. We know that there are antichrists out there trying to mess everything up, that there's one coming who's going to be really bad. But we treasure this, and we put it in our heart. We say, I, I can hang on, I can make it. I'll, I'll last. Why? Because I know judgment's coming. I know the, the, the little horn's not going to get away with it forever. It, it's the matter that I'm going to keep in my heart. And so there is hope. As rotten as the world gets, as one, we hear one more mass shooting. I, I read another one this morning. I think it was in Austin. There were like 14 people injured. And it's like, can we please be done with this? Can this end? More injustice rolling up again and again. And the point is, yes, it can end. It will end, and it will be judged. But it won't be because we got it all figured out, because we got the right person in office, or we have the right form of government, or we got a right economy. It will come because the Son of Man will come on clouds in glory. And then it will be right. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for warning us. Lord, thank you for letting us know it's bad. It's going to be bad. Humans are not to be trusted with ruling ourselves. We need a benevolent, loving, self-sacrificing dictator to come and take over. And so, Lord, we look forward to your reign. King Jesus, come. And in the meantime as we're wandering through these feet of clay and these, um, these feet of iron and clay mixed, Lord, let us remember what you told your apostles. It is not for us to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, and we will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the outermost parts of the earth. Lord, as we move through these feet and toes of iron and clay, Lord, may we be faithful with the message, with the gospel, with the work that you've given us, preparing the day for when you come, when whatever is restraining that man of lawlessness is removed and he appears, Lord. We know you're right behind him and about to judge him. Give us strength, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.